The views and opinions expressed on this show are purely the views and opinions of the person who made them and do not necessarily reflect or agree with those of the show's commercial sponsors, its radio station affiliates, or Internet broadcast platforms. As the restriction on our God-given right to free speech manifests itself throughout the world, we are inspired by Jesus Christ's immortal words, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we reserve the rights to all our words. Thank you, and now enjoy the show. Learn who rules over you, simply find out who you're not allowed to criticise. You are listening to ACH, I'm Andy, your host, and today I'm delighted to welcome back my good friend for his weekly visit, Dr Peter Hammond, so let's bring him up right now. Peter, are you with us? Yes, I am. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you so much, Peter. And um, we were just looking, or I was just looking at my... um, record of uh, all the times Peter's been on the show. I'll have to count those up, but uh, first was the 25th of November of 2017, and I was specifically looking for it because for those of you who've been listening for a length of time, you will realise that Peter always does a special show for us on Christmas Day, and the first one was in 2018, which means we'll be doing the fifth one on Christmas Day this year so that's something that I always look forward to and it gives everybody something uh, to listen to outside of the mainstream on Christmas because uh, a lot of uh, independent media and quite understandably they close down we're not recording live on that day um, but we do try and do some extra work so you have things to listen to over that period but anyway today we have a show for you entitled The Real Story of the Christian Liberation of Women. So, Peter, where would you like to start us off with this topic today? Yes, Andrea, I think uh, it's extraordinary how you can see how women have been used as a pretext for all kinds of revolutionary attempts. And you can see there's the war on males and the war on fathers and there's the war on the family and there's the war on the unborn and, and so on as well. And then there's the gender wars. And now, of course, we've got all these people who are trying to have males competing in female sports, and it's just bizarre. But despite all the anti-Christian prejudice that's evident in so much of the feminist movement, and please know I'm 100% pro-feminine, but the feminist movement is not feminine at all. In fact, the feminist movement is quite anti-feminine. They might use the word feminine in their term feminist, but the feminist movement has actually done a lot of destruction to women. I'll, I'll prove that with uh, what's coming. But the fact is, it's to the teachings and the example of Jesus Christ that women owe most of their freedoms, if not all their freedoms, because the advent of Christianity raised the dignity of women and the freedom of women, and Christianity raised the rights of women to levels never before known in all of history, in any other culture, any other religion. Indeed, as one historian put it, the birth of Jesus Christ was the turning point in the history of women. And if you listen to all the propaganda and the Hollywood nonsense and some of the 
um, <clears throat> uh, departments of English in many universities today, uh, where they give the impression that Christianity is the worst thing that ever happened to women. Well, quite the contrary. As a result of the teachings and example of Jesus Christ, women in much of the world today, especially in the West, enjoy far more privileges and rights than at any other time in history. Although we can see a lot of this is in decline as Christianity is being uh, campaigned against, we can see a lot of abuse of women is coming back, but more of that later. By way of contrast, if anyone doubts what I'm saying, you only need to look at how women are treated in those countries where Christianity has had little influence. For example, in the Muslim Middle East, where Christian women have been publicly stripped and flogged, for example, in Sudan, for failing to wear the Islamic abaya, the black garment, the tent that covers the head, the face, the entire body. Under the Taliban in Afghanistan, women were forbidden to go to school, forbidden to work outside the home, forbidden to even walk without their whole face and head being covered under the abaya. And you can just imagine walking in such incredible heat, wearing black cloth over you, thick cloth, just it's, it's, it's suffocating. You know how bad it was to walk around just wearing a mask. Well, uh, imagine in Middle Eastern heat, uh, having to wear this full kind of uh, tent, which is suffocating in every way. Women have been arrested and jailed in Iran for wearing lipstick in Saudi Arabia. It was illegal for women to even drive a motor vehicle until very, very recently. Polygamy is also widely practiced in non-Christian religions. Christianity's always rejected polygamy because it inhibits, in fact, it exterminates exclusive devoted love. Christians have always maintained that love between a man and a woman ought to be exclusive. Otherwise, marriage can be degraded in essence to mere physical lust. No woman who loves her husband and wishes to be loved fully in return can tolerate another wife. So monogamy gives recognition to women, it gives status and value to women. But just take, for example, the founder of Islam, Muhammad. He had 16 wives and two concubines, and his successor, Caliph Umar, married seven women and had two slave concubines. And the Caliph Uthman married eight women. And the Caliph Ali, who is Muhammad's son-in-law, he had 11 wives and 19 slave concubines. Muhammad's grandson, Hassan, married 70 women, had at least 31 children that we know of. Muhammad also authorized temporary marriages for three nights or more. Temporary marriages sounds like a one-night stand. Uh, but anyway, he called it a temporary marriage. And I first came across this word working in Sudan, where Muslim soldiers would come into village and have a temporary marriage with some of the local girls, against their will, of course, in many cases. And... Uh, uh, then they would be able to divorce them when they left uh, the village. And so a man could desert his wife, so-called wife, leaving her without any rights, any obligations, without regard to any support, even for offspring, who could have no claim to inheritance or support. And I know this has been practiced in Sudan. I've come across it and spoken to victims of it. But by approving of polygamy and approving of mistresses and temporary marriages, for example, Islam denies the value of a genuine marriage based on exclusive, lifelong, devoted love. Polygamy also erodes the concept of a biblical family. Christianity has always maintained that monogamy, one man, one woman for life alone, gives the recognition, the status, the value that any woman needs, and the environment for raising children in a stable and loving home. It, it's hard enough to raise children in a present age in, in an intact family. Just imagine if you've got multiple wives and multiple sort of um, 
can you imagine the dysfunctionalism of a situation in a polygamous home? Well, few people appreciate how highly promiscuous and depraved cultures were before the advent of Christianity. And you can take the British historian Edward Gibbon, no friend of Christianity, but still, in his history of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, Edward Gibbon stated that marital faithfulness in the Roman Empire was virtually unknown. Not only was adultery and fornication commonplace, but obscene sexual practices were prevalent and and absolutely normal. Even the most depraved, obscene sexual acts were shamelessly illustrated on household items like lamps and bowls and cups and vases. And we know this because of, for example, uh, those towns that that, uh, have been preserved uh, because of the lava that covered and they've uncovered recently. And you can see, oh, my, um, uh, on walls, on on, uh, tiles in the ground, all sorts of things that would be considered absolutely perverse pornographic today. The Greeks and the Romans also exercised in the nude and bathed publicly in nude and uh, completed sports, for example, in the Olympics, in many cases, in the nude. And this was considered somehow acceptable. The Roman writer Ovid noted that sexual relations had become sadistic and masochistic. Catullus, a Roman writer, referred to the prevalence of Romans practicing group sexual orgies. Suetonius reported that the emperor Tiberius had women completely undressed, waiting on his tables while he dined. And Tiberius also had male and female prostitutes openly engaging in group sex as entertainment for him. The emperor Caligula was given to incest with all of his sisters engaged in sex while he ate, often had people tortured during his orgies. The emperor Titus surrounded himself with all manner of perversities. The emperor Domitian engaged in incestuous relationships. The emperor Commodius, the one who's been popularized by the uh, gladiator film. Well, in it, you don't see any of his uh, uh, women around him, but actually the Emperor Commodus had a harem of 300 concubines and 300 young boys to satisfy his transsexual appetites. So you're talking about transsexuals. Well, the Roman Empire was full of it. This isn't something new just to the American Empire. Homosexuality, pedophilia was rampant in Greece and Rome. Tiberius, Nero, Galba, Hadrian, Commodus, many other Roman emperors engaged in widespread homosexual perversions and child molestation. Decadent plays, including live sex mutilations and bestialities on stage, literally mutilating people on stage as part of the performance, became common, not depicting it, doing it, uh, during the reigns of Nero and Trajan. The Roman Lex Julia de Adulteris, find adultery only on the basis of the marital status of the woman. So a married man could not be guilty of adultery in the Roman Empire uh, if he had sex with a single woman. Adultery was perceived as a crime only if the only the woman could commit against the husband. So in Roman law, adultery was a property crime against the husband, not an ethical issue, which applied to either single or married men. So into this decadent debauched, depraved environment, the Christian message and the Christian lifestyle came as a radical, revolutionary, and actually very offensive message. Exodus 20 verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. Hebrews 13 verse 4, marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually moral. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 3, the husband should fulfill his marital duty towards his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
1 Peter 3 verse 7. Be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect. These are radical, revolutionary, actually even offensive, anti-cultural positions uh, that the Bible clearly stated. So not only did the Christians maintain that marriage should be between one man and one woman for life, but they also insisted that sexual relations had to be confined within marriage. They also believed that sex made the couple of one flesh. And this very radical concept required married couples to remain totally faithful to one another. Extramarital sex was seen not only as unfaithfulness to your partner in marriage, but in violation of God's express command, and it did violence to the concept of one flesh. So marital faithfulness in this revolution of love transformed society and challenged the perversity of polygamy the depravity of Rome, the double standards and the hypocrisy of the Roman Greek societies. And Christianity greatly elevated the world's sexual morality by opposing adultery and fornication and homosexuality and by opposing child molestation and bestiality and other sexual decadence. Christians made a contribution to civilization that was absolutely unprecedented. Never before had any religion uh, heightened public morals in this way. It was as a result of the tireless work of Christians that by the 5th century, the wife was able to divorce an adulterous husband, something which had never before occurred in the ancient world. <laughs> not in Babylon, not in Assyria, not in Egypt, not in Greece, not in Rome. And the idea that the wife could divorce the husband for him committing adultery, uniquely Christian position. Christianity also equalized the crime of adultery and brought dignity and beauty to the formal wedding ceremony. Prior to Christianity, wedding ceremonies were anything but dignified. In keeping with their low regard of women and marriage as a whole, obscene songs, mockery, open displays of extreme, humiliating, embarrassing decadence were part and parcel of Roman weddings. However, from the fourth century on, Christianity brought about a revolution in the state's view of marriage introducing a dignity, a beauty, and a solemnity to weddings, which had never before been seen. And the belief that marriage is a divine institution, a sacrament, stems from Christianity, as documented by Edward Westermark in The History of Marriage. Now, there's very little that's uh, held to be wrong these days, but um, protecting children from paedophilia is still generally accepted as an important position. The abhorrence with which most of Western society still generally holds for paedophilia, the sexual molestation of children, is a direct result of Christianity. Prior to Christianity, paedophilia, homosexuality, completely accepted by Roman and Greek society. Roman and Greek plays and novels and artwork and even the writings of their philosophers reveal a complete acceptance, even an obsession with paediatry or sex with minors, with children. The Roman emperors, Tiberius, Nero, Galba, Hadrian, Commodus, amongst many others, were renowned for their numerous homosexual liaisons with children. Bisexuality, perversion, sexual deviance were widespread throughout the pagan cultures of Greek, uh, of the Greek and Roman empires. And so um, the fact that today this can be considered a scandal, well, it wouldn't have been a scandal back then. You know what Jeffrey Epstein's been doing and all of that, uh, and Harvey Weinstein, that wouldn't have even been a scandal in ancient Rome or ancient Greece, let alone Babylon and Assyria or Egypt, for example. So Walter Williams, in his book, The Spirit and the Flesh, sympathetically focuses on the prevalent homosexuality amongst the American Indians, uh, the Kwakulu, the Crow, the 
Klamaths, the Hopi, the Sioux, the Navajo, the Zuni, the Yokuts, and other tribes in America all practiced homosexuality before Christianity came to Americas. Often homosexual acts were seen as part of religious ceremonies performed by their shamans. And it was the clear biblical teaching against such immorality that revolutionized Western civilization. Leviticus 18.22. Do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. That is detestable. Leviticus 20 verse 13. If a man lies with a male as he lies with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon their own heads. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9 to 10. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And in Romans 1, verse 18 on, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Shame for lust. The men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received themselves the due penalty for their perversion. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing good. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death. They not only continue to do these very things, but they approve of those who practice them. That's all in Romans 1. So you could see that the Bible clearly elevated ethics to standards never before seen in the history of the world. And it's an historic fact that the outlawing of adultery is a direct result of influence of Christianity. The outlawing of homosexuality was only the result of Christianity. The outlawing of pedophilia and other immorality was the result of the influence of Christianity, the clear teachings of the Bible. This is historic fact. The biblical doctrine that sexual intimacy is a holy gift of God, only to be enjoyed between a husband and wife within the context of marital privacy, was a revolutionary Christian concept. Historians note that the Christian concern for privacy for marriage essentially led to the institutionalization of privacy. Privacy has very strong Christian roots. In fact, Christianity invented privacy. Uh, Richard Hickson documents in Privacy in a Common Society or Privacy in a Public Society that privacy was basically invented by Christianity. There was no such concept of privacy before Christianity. And in fact, I've noticed that that's true because when I've gone to many mission fields, um, it's extraordinary how the people feel that they can walk into your hut or tent or where you are and start rifling through your bags and packages and looking in the pouches. And uh, in the case, we've actually got cupboards, opening cupboard doors and looking around and, and you know, basically seeing what do you have in the, in the cupboard? What do you have in the shelves here? And, uh, and doing this without sense of shame. And one of the things that's a bit awkward is when you're trying to shower over there, and, you know, that's often behind a bit of a, a fence of reeds and uh, uh, some bamboo maybe, and you're balancing on a couple of rocks with mud um, under there, and you've got a few buckets of water, and you're using a cup of water to try and wash and, and so on, and rinse with your towel draped over the sort of reed fence. And, you know, when I'm trying to have a bath in places like the Nuba Mountains of Sudan, I'll often hear giggles and shrieks of excitement from the little children who 
trying to peek through the reeds and see is he white under his clothes as well and and not feeling any shame that they're trying to peek on you when you're changing or so on like this. Um, and uh, even even when you're praying, for example, you can suddenly feel hands all over the place and little kids might come along and start wanting to touch your hair and touch your skin. And, and uh, it feels a bit creepy if you're not used to this sort of thing. But there are societies where they have no real concept of privacy or private space or that these things are the results of Christian teaching. The Christian teaching that your body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. The body are, is a temple of the Holy Spirit, teaching in 1 Corinthians 6. Um, this led Christians to condemn and later outlaw adultery and pedophilia, homosexuality, bestiality, pornography, and other decadence which had once been prevalent and accepted in pre-Christian cultures. And you can see, well, I grew up in that society where everything was, these things weren't even talked about, known. Uh, I had no concept there was such a thing as homosexuality or pornography until I was way out of school. And uh, in fact, I was in the army before I realized there's such a thing as homosexuality. I thought it was just a joke. I didn't know there actually were people like that. And as for pornography, I think I was 20 seven years old when I first saw pornography uh, on a visit to Germany uh, on a speaking tour. I, I, I never knew there was such a thing because they banned it in our country so much, Rhodesia, South Africa. Uh, these societies were so Christian in the sense that um, things like Sabbath desecration, blasphemy, pornography was just banned, and we didn't even know about it. Well, now these pagan things are coming back as Christianity is retreating or being suppressed. St. Augustine in the City of God observed that the Romans despised the Christians <clears throat> because of the Christian opposition to their unrestrained sexual depravities. So um, that's St. Augustine's point in the City of God. The reason for most opposition to Christianity was the opposition of Christianity to immorality. The church father Tertullian noted the Romans were so incensed with Christian opposition to their immoralities, the orgies, and so on. They hated the very name Christian. I think this explains why there's so much hostility for Christianity today. People who prefer their sin hate those who oppose or expose their sin. Professor Alvin Smith, in his How Christianity Changed the World, he observes the hateful attitudes that were once directed against the early Christians seem to be returning, and for similar reasons. Despite the current attention given to toleration. Increasingly, Christians are hated, hated by those who advocate hate crime laws. They seem blind to see that <clears throat> they have a version of hate themselves, and they're not willing to uh, apply equal standards. And so, <clears throat> still to quote from Professor Alvin Smith and how Christianity changed the world, in large measure, Christians are hated because they seek to honor God and his laws, rather than redefine God as our future selves. These are feverish efforts underway to bring back the sexual debauchery of ancient paganism. And, and that's the end of the quote. I mean, there's no doubt we are seeing a return to ancient paganism. So when they speak about progress, public nudity, body scarification, body piercing, child sacrifice, abortion, um, immorality, perversion, these things are not progress. This is a revision to pre-Christian paganism, actually. So to appreciate the revolutionary impact of how Jesus Christ has changed the history of women and to understand how radical the teachings of Christ was and his conduct towards women, uh, we need to understand historically 
how low the status of women were in the ancient times, in the time of Christ. So take, for example, Greece. Greece has often been lifted up as so wonderful. Well, women in ancient Greece were not permitted to leave their house unless accompanied by male escort. And when guests were present in the home, a Greek wife was not permitted to eat at the same table or interact with the guest at all. The wife had to be unseen and confined to her quarters, to the uh, gynaceum, as the Greeks called. The average Athenian woman had the social status of a slave. Because whereas the husband could divorce the wife at any time, the wife could not divorce her husband in ancient Greece. Girls did not go to school at all. And girls were not taught to read or write. Throughout a woman's entire life, she is not permitted to speak in public. So as Sophocles declared, silence is an adornment to women. Aristotle declared, silence gives grace to women. Homer wrote, speech shall be for men. Euripides wrote, woman, specious curse to men. Um, Asileus wrote, evil of mind are they, guileful of purpose with impure hearts. Aristophanes wrote, for women are shameless set, the vilest of creatures going. An historian, the Greek historian Homer wrote, one cannot trust women. So Greek civilization accorded an extremely low status to women, not allowing them to have any meaningful social life in public or in the presence of men or even public. Um, and women had little or no social value. Female infanticide was common. Baby girls were expendable. Female babies were seen as an economic liability, a social burden. And it's extraordinary how so many films depict women uh, very anachronistically uh, in films on ancient Greece and Rome as just like uh, they are today, dressed almost the same as well, with the same kind of social interactions. But historically, that's not accurate. Women in ancient Rome had none of the rights and privileges that the men enjoyed. Roman wives were not allowed to be present with a husband's guest at a meal. A married woman was under the Roman law manus, which placed her under the absolute control of a husband who could divorce her, sell her into slavery or kill her at will. There'd be none of this, uh, you know, the perfect murder or some kind of thing where a husband gets arrested for trying to murder his wife because they had the power of life and death over their wife. They want to kill him, sell him into slavery. Um, there was no scandal. They hadn't broken law at all. A woman under minus was legally prohibited from inheriting property. Under patria protestus, a woman was prohibited from speaking in public. Women were not allowed to speak in court under Roman law of Patrofamelius, the man had supreme absolute power over his wife and his children. A man could even execute his married daughter. He had full authority to chastise, even to beat to death his wife, even his grown children, including his grandchildren. I mean, that was Roman law. I don't know that I've ever seen any film, uh, Hollywood film on Rome that ever even acknowledged that verbally, let alone depicted it. Now, these laws were all strongly criticized by the early church fathers. St. Augustine, the Bishop of Hippo, opposed it very much. From the very beginning, Christians opposed infanticide and they rescued and adopted many of the abandoned babies. Uh, for there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, you are one Christ Jesus, Galatians 3.28. So uh, women were oppressed in the pagan Greek and Roman worlds. Well, what about Hebrew culture? People think, well, surely that was different. Well, the Christian teacher was not only radical in ancient Greece and Roman world, but even the Hebrew culture prevalent at that time. The rabbinic oral law, now recorded in the Talmud and the Midrash, not only barred women from speaking in public and reading the law, women were totally forbidden from reading the Torah. Women were also forbidden from testifying in court under the ancient Hebrews. One rabbinic teaching put it, it is shameful to hear a woman's voice in public. 
It's in Berikoth 24a. Another rabbinic teaching asserted, let the words of the Lord, the Torah, be burned rather than read by a woman. If a man teaches his daughter the law, it is as though he had taught her lechery. That's in Soto 3 and 4. So for this reason, synagogue worship was meant to consist only of male participants. Women, if present, were to be passive listeners separate from the men by a partition, a mitsha. These women were never allowed to raise their voices. They couldn't sing. Only the men were allowed to sing or chant in the synagogue. And it was only by the late 18th century in Reformed synagogues only that Jewish women were permitted to sing. So when Mary came and sat at Jesus' feet, as we read about in Luke 10, not only was she being a cultural deviant, but so too was the Lord Jesus because he clashed with the rabbinic teaching of his day. When her sister Martha complained about her not helping her, Jesus again violated rabbinic teaching by siding with Mary and commending Mary for desiring the teaching of God's word above this law of the rabbis. At the grave of Lazarus, Jesus taught Martha, I am the resurrection life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Under rabbinic law, to teach a woman, to teach a woman was bad enough. But the Lord Jesus did more than teach her. He called for public verbal response from Martha, which was expressly forbidden by rabbinic teaching of that time. Similarly, when you think of the Samaritan woman, the way the Lord interacted with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, John 4, may not appear so unusual to us, to Westerners today, yet to the prevailing Greek, Roman, and Hebrew culture at the time, a Lord's actions were shocking. Jesus not only ignored the Jewish anti-Samaritan prejudices, but he violated the customs that prohibited a man from speaking to any woman who was not his relative. The Samaritan woman herself was shocked. How are you to speak to me, a Samaritan woman? How can you ask me for a drink? And, uh, the rabbinic law of the time was quite explicit. He who talks with a woman in public brings evil upon himself. That's in Abbot 1.5. And one is not so much as to greet a woman, um, Berikoth 43b. So uh, the, the Talmud and the rabbinic teachings are very clear. So you can imagine then why the Lord's disciples were surprised to see Jesus talking with a woman. You read in John 4.27. But the Lord granted women a previously unknown respect and status. He not only broke with the anti-female culture of his era, but he set a high standard for his followers to emulate. The actions and teachings of Jesus raised the status of women to new heights, to the consternation and dismay and shock of both friends and foes. By word and deed, Christianity went against the ancient accepted practice that stereotyped women as socially inferior, intellectually inferior, spiritually inferior. Truly, our Lord came that you may have life and life in all its abundance. And indeed, there are those who are lost that shall be first, and those who are first now who will be lost. So the Lord turned some things upside down, Luke 13, verse 30. The Gospels record many women followed Jesus. And after his resurrection from dead, our Lord first appeared to several women, including Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren. Now, it's noteworthy that women were lost at the cross, first at the tomb, the first to proclaim the resurrection, and the first to witness to the Jews. Women attended the very first premium, the Pentecost premium. Women were the first to welcome Christian missionaries to Europe. 
In fact, the very first European convert was a woman, Lydia, which we read about in Acts 16. So in the early church, women were not only very prominent, but they were frequently honored. Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. Mary, of course, the mother of Jesus. Mary of Bethany, uh, the sister of Martha. Uh, the Samaritan evangelist, Dorcas. Lydia, the businesswoman, the first European convert. And you read in Philemon 2, Aphia, our sister, and in Colossians 4.15, uh, Nympha and the servant, the church that meets in a house, and Phoebe in, in Romans 16, uh, a servant of the church, a deaconess uh, in Sennacherib. She's been a great help to many people, including me. And in his epistles, Apostle Paul mentions numerous female co-workers, including Priscilla and a fellow workers in Christ Jesus in Romans 16, and Mary, who worked very hard for you in Romans 16, verse 6, and Trophima and Trophosa, these women worked hard for the Lord. Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. That's still in Romans 16. And Philippians 2, uh, Philippians 4, verse 2 to 3, Paul writes of Euidia and Sennachia. These women have contended at my side and have caused the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers. So Professor Alvin Smith observes in his book, How Christianity Changed the World, Jesus Paul and the early church broke the ancient bonds that kept women secluded and silent, as an Athenian society, and subservient, as under the Roman law of patria protestus and minus, and silent and segregated public worship, as in the Jewish culture. The freedom and dignity that the early Christians gave to women is also evident by having equal access with men to baptism and the Lord's Supper. The message of the Lord of repentance and salvation proclaimed by the apostles had revolutionary effects on the lives of women. The early Christians not only included women in the life of the church, but gave them a freedom and a dignity and a respect unknown in the Greco-Roman or Judaic cultures. All that a quote from Dr. Smith, Professor Smith in How Christianity Changed the World. Far from Christianity being anti-woman, as many critics allege, women in the early church soon outnumbered men to such a vast degree that there were simply not enough Christian men available for marriage. And Celsus, a second-century critic of Christianity, ridicules the believers by saying Christianity was a religion attracted women. Termed as the sign of weakness. Interesting that today people are claiming that Christianity is anti-woman. That's not the way the woman of Jesus' day or the days of the apostles or uh, in the Roman Empire saw it at all. Numerous Christian authors um, uh, noted this, and even the Roman pagan authors saw Christianity as providing dignity and freedom to women, and they saw it as a threat to the entire social order of the Roman Empire. Christianity revolutionized marriage by seeing the wife as a partner, commanding husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. That's a high standard. Ephesians 5.25, allowing Christian women the choice as to whom they married. Christianity also granted women the right to divorce unfaithful or abusive husbands. Women also received for the first time guardianship over their children who'd previously been the sole possession of the man. Well, here's a surprise that I think many people will uh, be uh, amazed to hear. Uh, Christianity pioneered other freedoms of women, including the removal of the veil. Women at the time of Christ were veiled by the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Chinese, the Egyptians, the Greeks, the Hebrews, the Romans, and the Samaritans. Women had to walk around wearing veils. Now, you won't see this in the films Hollywood has made of Rome at that time because, you know, 
You can't imagine Elizabeth Taylor and so on wanting to walk around wearing a veil. They want their face to be seen. So Hollywood actresses uh, uh, just didn't comply with what would have been culturally, historically accurate. But there were cases of Romans divorcing their wives for leaving the house unveiled. Greek women were required to wear a veil after marriage in public. And even amongst the Hebrews, the rabbis taught a godless man sees his wife go out with her head uncovered. He is duty-bound to divorce a woman not wearing a veil. That's in the Talmud. Um, Kethaboth too. Now, the lack of any specific reference in the Gospels or anywhere in the New Testament to women having to veil their faces led the church to increasingly discontinue the practice of veils. And while Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 urges the woman in Corinth to cover their hair in church, he makes no reference to veiling their faces. So in 1 Timothy 2, verse 8 to 9, where Paul tells a woman to dress modestly, not to braid the hair, he makes no mention of any veil of the face. So worldwide, Christianity has led the trend to dispense with the veil. Won't you see that depicted in Hollywood, let alone any of the secular humanist textbooks, that's for sure. Well, similarly, the Chinese practice of foot binding, where girls from an early age had to have their feet tightly bound, forcing their force smaller toes of each foot up and under the fleshy part of the foot, frequently causing severe infection, even on occasion gangrene. I mean, girls lost their legs uh, to, to this practice. This was abolished only under the influence of Christianity. This cruel custom of foot binding, which crippled many Chinese women, was only outlawed by the Chinese government in 1912, and it was the Christian missionaries who led the crusade to abolish foot binding in, in China. And uh, you might have I noticed the, the, the story of the little woman or in of the sixth happiness, the, the role of Gladys Aylward and others in, in fighting against foot binding, which was still continuing after that. The widespread practice of clitoridectomy or female circumcision is another cruel age old cultural practice, which has been outlawed in all countries where Christianity has become the majority religion. The only countries in the world where the barbaric ritual of female circumcision is still practiced are countries where Christianity has little or no influence. So before the coming of Christ, widows were ostracized, despised, frequently buried or burned alive at the husband's death. For countless centuries, India's cultural custom was suti, the burning alive of widows, integral part of Hindu culture. A woman's usefulness ended when her husband died. She had to uh, die on her husband's funeral pyre. So her children not only lost the father, but the mother at the same time became totally orphaned. By God's grace, as a result of the tireless efforts of Christian missionaries like William Carey, the British authorities finally, in 1829, outlawed the practice of suti. And when this went into effect, many Indians cried that the foundations of Hindu society would be shaken if widows were not burned alive. I get that out of the history book, India, A Short Cultural History. Others argued that the British ban of suti violated Article 25 of India's constitution, which gave the people freedom of religion. So that's in the book Sati, Widow Burning in India. So this legal ban on Sati, known to this day as Kerry's Edict, is still in effect, even though since the 1990s there have been numerous attempts to bring back widow burning and to revive this pagan custom with the open glorification of sooty widow burning and instances of teenage widows being cremated on their husband's funeral piles. So this is making a comeback. Dr. Schmidt notes, in the light of the current almost worldwide phenomenon of multiculturalism, which argues that all cultures and religions are essentially equal, the desire and efforts to bring back India's pagan culture of sooty may gain momentum in the future. Well, 
this is not just India. History records that before the coming of Christianity, widows were burned by the American Indian tribes, by the Maori in New Zealand, by the Chinese, by the Finns, and by the Scandinavians. We're talking about the Viking barbarians, in many cases, did this before the advent of Christianity. We had a Parliament of World Religions in Cape Town back in 1999, which I was part of protesting against, and we designed an evangelistic tract on what the scripture says about the Parliament of World Religions. Well, uh, one of the lectures was given by a Hindu, and uh, this was one of the um, electives uh, in the Cape Town um, uh, Good, uh, Good Hope Center where uh, this Parliament of World Religions was held, December 1999. And this Indian said that uh, it all cultures are right and it is wrong for Christian missionaries to go and to oppose any cultural practice or to interfere in the culture of local people and to dare to tell people that what they do is wrong. So one of our missionaries raised his hand and said, was William Carey wrong to oppose Sotee, the burning of widows on the funeral piles of husbands in India? And oh my, it was painful to watch as this Indian professor coughed and spluttered and wheezed and choked. And it seemed like an age before this man mustered up a reply. And his reply was quite staggering in its heartlessness. He said, well, widow burning didn't affect that many people didn't affect that many people. I think it affected the tens of thousands who were burned alive and the poor children who were orphaned as a result. I mean, what kind of response is that? It didn't affect that many people? Well, Jesus had particular compassion on widows. Christ rebuked the Pharisees for taking financial advantage of widows. And Christ praised the widow who, though poor, gave two coins an offering. I tell you the truth, he said, this poor widow has put more than all the others. And he condemned the Pharisees who devoured widows' houses. Christ had compassion on a widow of Nain and raised her dead son. In 1 Timothy 5, the Apostle Paul urges Christians to honor and care for widows. In James 1, verse 27, we taught that religion, that God our Father accepts as pure and faithful and faultless as this, look after widows and their distress. So when you understand how atrociously women were once abused in pre-Christian pagan cultures, then you can understand why historians have declared the birth of Jesus Christ was the turning point in the history of women. And the conversion of the Roman world to Christianity brought about a great change in women's status. That is no, no overstatement at all. That's totally true. Proverbs 31 verse 30 says, Charm is deceptive. Beauty is fleeting. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Because of the teachings and actions of our Lord Jesus Christ over the centuries, Christianity has progressively achieved for women greater respect, greater dignity, greater honor, and greater protection. It is to Christianity that we owe marriage as a mutual partnership. It's to Christianity we owe the rejection of polygamy. To Christianity we owe the promotion of monogamy and marital faithfulness as the cultural ideal. And in granting women respect and dignity and protection, Christianity broke with the prevalent anti-Christian and anti-female prejudices of the ancient world, of the pagan cultures, and of the Eastern religions. All the freedoms and advantages which women enjoy today, perhaps unknowingly as to who to thank for it, are the result of the teachings of Jesus Christ and the example of Jesus Christ and the progressive work through the centuries of the church seeking to apply these biblical principles to all areas of life. However, we need to say, if present anti-Christian trends continue, we are going to see a return to these previous pagan abuses of women. And in fact, we really are in some places. Those advocating pornography, sexual permissiveness, 
homosexual marriages, so-called, legalized prostitution, the lowering of the age of consent, the decriminalization of adultery. They're not offering us progress. They're only offering us a return to pre-Christian paganism. The words of the Bible in Nehemiah 4.14 come to us today. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Fight for your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. Sorry, I was just making some notes on the sati practice that I've never heard of. Um, quite astonishing. Um, I've gone over to Wikipedia for this. Um, sati was a practice, now mostly historical, in which a widow sacrifices herself by sitting atop her deceased husband's funeral pyre. It's astonishing, and this was only outlawed in 1829, as you say. Um, and, and they even credit William Carey with uh, huh. his involvement in outlawing it on uh, Wikipedia. Well, good for them for acknowledging it, because <laughs> I'm sure they don't give much emphasis. No, indeed, they don't. Uh, they, they credit it more to the um, governor of India at the time and the East India Company, because, of course, we know they did such wonderful things. But, um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it's such an important message today because Christianity is demonised continually for anything that they can demonise it for, the powers that should not be. Because, you know, Jesus Christ is the way, the truth and the life. And we are being governed by very evil people. And it's so interesting to me that virtually all the lifestyles that these people that are in power at the present time push, you can open a Bible and find where it's condemned. Have you noticed that, Peter? It's so true. <clears throat> and extraordinary also that it's not much of a scandal when a Democrat leftist, liberal, progressive Marxist does it. But if um, some senator who happens, or congressman, or president who happens to be conservative or opposing narrative, if he does something remotely uh, wrong, they all um, uh, jump down and make a scandal about it and want to hound him out of existence. So it's okay for Bill Clinton to have multiple adulterous affairs and things like this and be part of uh, pedo one and pedo island of Jeffrey Epstein. But... Next thing, they're all outraged because uh, Donald Trump, say, um, has had some affairs and he's been married several times. Well, excuse me, are these not the same people who say there's, there's no such thing as, as a right and wrong and, uh, you know, we've got to accept the cultural norms and uh, don't judge people. And uh, uh, funny, they have no problem with multiple adulteries of the Bill Clintons of this world, but suddenly they, they're concerned about Donald Trump. Obviously, they don't even. They are promoting endlessly immorality on the Hollywood films, and they have decriminalized adultery, prostitution, pornography, gambling, and a whole lot of other things: blasphemy and desecration of Sabbath. And uh, they're even trying to pass laws ever increasingly lowering the age of consent to allow paedophilia, uh, what we call now statutory rape, um, of sex with underage children. And uh, uh, they they feign a horror when somebody they don't like uh, breaks some of those laws, but they're promoting that behavior all the time. It, it often just astounds me, uh, for example, in our country, the very people who uh, decriminalized pornography in our country, they made a scandal some time back because uh, the mayor of Cape Town, who was a 
colored man of the National Party was accessing pornography um, uh, on his computer. And you thought, well, that's interesting. Aren't you the same people who legalized it and argued against us when we were protesting against pornography in the streets? But it's a scandal if they see somebody who's got a different political position to theirs does it, but they think it's perfectly acceptable for everyone else. So the double standards involved in this is shocking. Back to you, Andrew. Yes, uh, a phrase that's come to my mind in recent weeks is to be consistent in pointing out their inconsistencies, Peter. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, that seems to have caught on with people. And it is important because you can take so many recent events. Why are all these people uh, in jail in America for protesting a stolen election on January the 6th when we had cities burning down throughout America with looting, rape, murder, violent assault... And it seems none of those people are in prison. We touched on that last week. Uh, oh, there was one guy that was arrested because he threatened to go into the Diamond District, for those of you who remember last week's show. But, uh, um, and, and also, last week's show post, I need to uh, draw your attention to it because um, Peter made a comment um, after the show. He had a link that was very important, and it was to do with the amount of damage that the BLM riots did as opposed to the January the 6th um, um, unrest. And this is in the post for last week's show. It's from uh, the Western Journal. And it said, BLM's mostly peaceful riots cost a thousand times more in damage than January 6th capital unrest. So that is in the post for last week's show, which is number 1882. So please go there and give that a read, something Peter found for us. And um, one quick question, Peter, and I tried to find this out a while ago, but you know when you try and find things out on the internet that they don't really want you to know about because it goes against their politically correct narrative. Unless you can think of an exact search term that's going to bring it up, you're not going to find it. But I recall... Um, And I would have been in my teens, I believe, at the time. But when Indira Gandhi was murdered, that her son and her successor, Rajiv Gandhi, had to stand next to her funeral pyre pyre, until her brain popped or something. It was quite awful, because I remember seeing the footage and they were reporting on that, I believe, on the BBC at the time. Are you aware of anything like that? I didn't specifically notice that, no, but... Um, I do know many Hindus who've converted to Christianity who are horrified at the practice of um, cremation by Christians. You say, we always understood cremation is Hindu or Buddhist or uh, any of these other religions. It's, it's uh, not Christian. The moment an uh, Indian gets converted, he will not take part in any cremation. He'll only support uh, burial, which is quite biblical. And we can see how uh, Abraham buried Sarah, how Abraham was buried, and how Joseph even specified how his bones were to be brought back to be buried in uh, the promised land when they came out of Egypt and uh, Jesus buried. And you, you can see throughout the Bible, burial is, is the standard practice for believers. And uh, it's quite disconcerting that people are going back to what was pre-Christian paganism, cremation. Cremation is quite a harsh thing. And that's also why in the Middle Ages, the papacy uh, and the Holy Roman Empire was supporting the burning alive of Bible translators and reformers. Why? Because burning of a body is seen as a curse. And uh, uh, in the Bible is even condemnation for a king who burned the bones of his enemy. And uh, uh, so plainly, 
uh, cremation is seen as disrespect for the body as opposed to burial, which is a clear testimony of the resurrection of the body. And, and uh, Christianity is unique in believing in the resurrection of the body. Many religions may believe in an afterlife of some sort, but apparently only Christianity teaches the resurrection of the body. And burial, we're not saying that if a person died in a plane explosion or was eaten by a shark that God can't raise their body on the day of resurrection. Obviously, we know that God can do that. But um, the point just is the burial service is a clear testimony of our faith in the resurrection of the body, and it's respectful to the body, whereas cremation is is very pagan. It's actually not respecting the body as as a temple of the Holy Spirit and and with looking forward to the day of resurrection. So um, it's very sad when you look at pagan religions and cremation. It it lacks, and I'm sure many of you who've been to a funeral of a Christian, and you compare that to the funeral of a non-Christian, just what a massive contrast is. And, and it's there's an element of of amongst our grief that we do we do grieve, but we don't grieve as those who have no hope uh, at a burial of a believer. But how sad to be at a cremation of an unbeliever. And back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And before we go, can you please let the audience know how they can contact you and where they can find your work? Yes, certainly. And I should say that two of my resource books that I'd highly recommend are How Christianity Changed the World by Dr. Alvin Smith and What If Jesus Had Never Been Born by Dr. James Kennedy. Um, outstanding books. But um, you can get hold of me at peter at frontline.org.za or for the American ZA, peter at frontline.org.za and uh, our website www.frontlinemissionsa.org, frontlinemissionsa.org. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. And, of course, I'm also on social media if you want to get hold of us on Facebook page, both Peter Hammond or Frontline Fellowship. Um, thank you so much, Andrew. And, by the way, I've got a uh, leaflet that I've done on the Christian liberation of women as a tract, which people can download. Um, if they go onto our christianaction.org website, it's the main article on, on Christian Action website right now, christianaction.org.za. And uh, they can access this as a leaflet to print out and give to people or um, send uh, uh, to people who you think might find this useful for witnessing in their community. Thank you, Andrew. God bless. Thank you, Peter. God bless. And also on the traditional Christian message this Sunday, as you know, I always read one of Peter's presentations and this Sunday it's going to be the fear of God. So I'm yeah. sure you will all look forward to that. So that being said, I want to thank Peter so much for joining us today for a show entitled The Real Story of the Christian Liberation of Women. I want to thank all of you for listening. Peter and I will be back with you at the same time next week. I will, of course, be back with you all tomorrow. And until then, folks, have a wonderful day and bye. Bye-bye.